Ben, please be seated. Please turn with me in your Bibles, or you can look on your outline at Hebrews 13. This is the last chapter of this great Christ-centered sermon called Hebrews. In brief summary, the book of Hebrews really is a call to commitment to people who were pressed, hard-pressed, considering, in fact, leaving the faith. Uh, They were undergoing great persecution for their claim to be uh, belongers of, followers of Jesus, and they had the temple in the background. There was some official status still for Jews in that day, and many were questioning whether or not they should stick with this. Should we just go back? At least we had some status in Rome when we were part of Israel or part of the Jews. Now, though, we're persecuted. We lose our property. We lose our status. We're spat upon. We can't even uh, know where our brothers or sisters have disappeared to. This is a hard life. We're going to quit. And the preacher of Hebrews says, don't quit. Don't quit. Persevere. And in fact, you could not go back if you wanted. Because what you'd be going back to is far, far inferior to what has come. Christ is the fulfillment to all you've been looking to. Yes, you're undergoing hardship and trial and persecution, but he is exactly the fulfillment of all these things. That temple, he fulfills it. Those priests, he fulfills them. The high priest, he's better than them. He is better than all those things that have come before. Better than Moses, better than Abraham, better than the angels. It is Christ. This is a call to commitment, the book of Hebrews. So we come to the last chapter, and is is usually the case with the end of epistles, even the sermonic epistle. There's several exhortations that are kind of stacked together as the last words written. That's true of Hebrews 13, as it wraps up what has come before it. Hear God's word as we study Hebrews 13, 1 through 3 this morning. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let's pray. Lord God, using the words of the psalmist, we pray, teach us your way that we may walk in your truth. Unite our heart to fear your name. We give thanks to you, O Lord our God, with our whole heart, and we will glorify your name forever. Amen. If I could be so simple as to suggest that there are basically two activities that should define the church. Now, please understand, this happens under the bigger heading of our purpose to be glorifiers of God, to be worshiping God, that worship is that act. Uh, that highest act of us, the church. However, if you were to define the church, how would you do it? As Christians, I don't mean don't ask the world, you know, don't ask the world what they would define the church as, but when I say to you, what comes to your mind when I say the church? Uh, Division, uh, competition, uh, chasing after things that are fading. Uh, Think of images of the church today. You know, when you turn on television, they typically don't interview people that are in small churches or churches that are less than several thousand, but rather they highlight the person who just bought a basketball stadium to fill the church. So those are the images of the church today. I think even among Christians, just when you think of what the church is, programs, rather than what the Bible describes very, very simply in this twofold way, this twofold activity of the church, 
the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of love. The pursuit, pursuit of truth and the pursuit of love. I think Hebrews, just like all the books of the Bible, show this wonderful balance vividly. You have the truth, 12 chapters of Christology, some of the best, most clear Christology in all the Bible. Truth, solid truth, but integrated in that teaching is constantly this call to practice love as you're learning that truth. Truth and love, these are the things that should be distinctive traits of the church. If you emphasize just one over the other, then you don't have the distinctives that God has called us to exhibit, and we lose power in our witness. I think pursuing truth and pursuing love must define Redeemer, must define the church. If you emphasize truth and fail to practice love, you'll promote a harshness, indeed an ugliness, that doesn't reflect the heart of our Savior. And that's why Francis Schaeffer said, the truth without love is ugly. On the other hand, if you emphasize love without being guided by truth, you're fooling yourself because you're actually not practicing biblical love. Worse yet, it will lead to a complete departure from truth as any sort of guide, and it'll descend into a relativism, much of which you see today, that ultimately moves into meaninglessness, meaning, things that don't mean anything. I had trouble with that in the first service. I looked at Nathan, I got focused, I said it, but, you know, it doesn't matter what everyone else believes. It's relativism. It's relative to you, you know. That's great, you go to church. Wonderful. But don't ask them what they believe or why they go to church or what the church teaches. It's just, isn't that great that he goes to church? Uh, practicing love without truth leads us ultimately to what is futile. Augustine said it well, when regard for truth has been broken down or even even slightingly weakened, all things will remain doubtful, even love. Listen to what Peter says. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, so he speaks of truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So purity of heart is what we need to love one another. We want to be honest with each other in our love. I'm not just going to say I love you with no basis. It's the purity that God gives us. And purity is always based on truth. Truth is what purifies and then allows us to truly love one another. The book of Hebrews, while it's heavy on Christological doctrine, uh, several times there are these references to this great work that God had done in the Hebrews, and it was exhibiting itself in the way they were loving each other. Hebrews 6, 9 and 10. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you showed for his sake in serving the saints as you still do. So they were practicing love. This is a beautiful testimony for the Hebrews. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, to love and good works. I would submit to you, it's not just an option. This is the identifying feature of the people of God. People who know Christ will manifest love in several ways. They'll practice general brotherly love. It's just the way we operate. They will also show hospitality to other believers, even when they haven't known them for long. And ultimately, they will sympathize with those who they may never see in this life, 
but no are being persecuted. That's the concentric circles of love that come out of a congregation, of a church that's pursuing truth and love. I want us to consider these one by one. First, verse 1, the general practice of brotherly love is an identifying feature of the church. All of this presupposes truth. Twelve chapters of, of strict, heavy doctrine. Now, this, this encouragement to let brotherly love continue. Those are the exact words of Hebrews 13.1. Let brotherly love continue. We can understand why the author says this, because already twice we've noted that they were loving one another. So let it continue. Notice it doesn't say, let it start now. It's assuming already, as it's been giving truth, as the writer's been giving truth, that they've been loving and practicing love, and they're doing both of these things. Let it continue. You know, we must never, ever think that we have arrived in the department of love. We can always improve, and we always have to work to maintain love. That's why it says, let brotherly love continue. Because if you let your guard down, we'll lose it. I want you to think of a personal relationship you have, whether it be with a friend, a sibling, your spouse. You have to maintain that relationship, don't you? Love just doesn't stay based on something you did way back when. You know, if you had a friend that you went through some really traumatic experience with, maybe you were in the military with them, or some experience that uh, really brought you close together in a quick time, then you were separated and you saw them 15 years later, and right away you really have a sense of connecting again, but what happens? After a little while, you get tired of going over the same thing that brought you together. See, there was no maintenance that went on between the years. It's still a special event that happened, but we have to maintain love. And that happens definitely in the community of Christ. It's an ongoing maintenance to let brotherly love continue. The preacher of Hebrews is trying to encourage them to not forget this. In the midst of the persecution, in the midst of you learning this sound doctrine, do not lose what you've been practicing which is love. In fact, brothers and sisters, this, as I have looked at it, and I studied this week, I thought, boy, this seems like about the fourth or fifth time I've preached something like this. Why is this? Well, I preached through John, and this is a heavy theme in John. I preached through 1 Thessalonians. This is a heavy theme in 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 1 Peter, I thought of all the books that I've gone through in exposition, every one of them has some reference in it for the need of love, and that love to be that thing that always works its way through the community of believers to take the truth and understand how it's applied and lived out. Just think of this brief survey of the Bible, not just the New Testament. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors as yourself. I am the Lord. John 13.35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Listen to 1 John 3.14. This is very convicting, very powerful. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, how do we usually determine whether someone's a believer? I'll tell you how I do. I ask them a bunch of doctrinal questions. I give them a list of orthodox questions that they ought to be able to answer. Honestly, that's how I do it. There's nothing wrong with that, but why don't we ask people how they love? Because the basis for how we know people are Christians is not the doctrinal answers they give. In fact, if we ordained men based solely on doctrinal answers, Satan would be the best minister ever. He knows the truth better than I know it. He could say it. What it says in 1 John 3.14, we know we have passed out of death into life, not because we passed a theological exam or a doctrinal test, but because we have love for the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death, is what it said. 
You cannot call yourself a Christian and not love. It is not an option. You may struggle with doctrinal error and still be a Christian, but you cannot fail to love and call yourself a Christian. Why? Because love is supernatural. It's not something you conjure up. It's the very thing that identifies us because it's so unnatural that we would love other people. Only God can give that to us. That's why it's the identifying feature, the identifying feature of those who truly are born again. Paul says to the Thessalonians, this church, by the way, that he loves because he, the Lord used him to plant this church in a span of, at very least, is two weeks or maybe two months. There's a little debate. But he had to basically run out of Thessalonica and would write back to really these love letters. And he says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write of you, write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God. Hear that? Taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. The same refrain, that you've got to keep working at love. It is not natural. You will slip back into your natural tendency to self-preserve and not love others. It's of God that he taught you this. So do it. Live it out. Act it out. Move loving one another. In Philippians, Paul writes, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Knowledge and discernment of what? The truth. And that you would love while doing so. Second Peter, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. The refrain consistently throughout God's word is the need for the vigorous pursuit of truth, at the same time vigorously pursuing love. You've got to have them both. That is the way God hones his church and makes it appear so different to the world that the world wants it. Just being different because we're harsh and, 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 and judgmental Yes, they'll note we're different, but they won't want any part of that. Just being loving and sloppy about doctrine, sloppy about what is particular, will make them look at it and say, it really doesn't make any difference. I'm, I'm a good person just like them. They're not making any claim that I've really got to adhere to. But when you put those together, that's a powerful witness. More powerful than any program we could devise. More powerful than anything I could say. That's the thing that will win people over. Ultimately, that's what they're looking at is how you're living. How are you Saying these things, and how is it playing itself on in your life? And how are you loving one another? I would submit to you that we have perhaps, in our effort to try to be all things to all people, forgotten the simplest of Jesus' commands to love as the means by which he brings people to know him. What are some concrete ways that we can practice loving one another here at Redeemer and the body of Christ? I think just very simply, spending time together and talking with parents, especially when I work more... Uh, Specifically with youth, a constant complaint that I would hear from children in one way or another is that they didn't spend enough time with their parents. And you get that kind of answer from the parent that, well, I, when I do spend time with them, though, it's really good time and I really focus on, you know, kids don't know anything about, quali about quality time. To them, it's quantity time. That is what quality time is. You can't, there's no such thing. Please get that out of your mind that you can just spend really good time once every seven or eight days and call that a good relationship. It's not. Quantity is what they want. My kids don't care if I play with a cardboard box with them. To them, that's quality time compared to these things I devised to go fishing. You know, a lot of fun that is, by the way. But a cardboard box, we can do a lot with that. My point to you is this, that we cannot start to love one another if we don't spend time together. Just showing up on Sunday and waving each other across sections will not, will not do it. 
And we have to strive against the distance, the culture, all the things that would drive us apart. We have to work towards loving one another, and that will mean spending time together in worship, in home fellowship groups. Those are specifically designed so you have a smaller setting to get to know folks. Just social events. Call people up to do things as you can. Also, I would submit to you that just serving one another, meals, childcare, helping with driving when necessary, housework, finances, giving counsel, mourning when someone is mourning, sharing burdens with one another, praying for each other regularly. These are ways in which we grow to love one another more, serving with one another. I've yet to find a way that uh, brings us better, uh, closer together than serving with one another. You get really colorful roommates when you serve together on mission trips. Uh, you learn things about other people that you didn't know before. It's just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing you could do that quite mirrors serving one another. Vacation Bible school. I think back on all the years of vacation Bible school here and at other churches. In just that one week of intense seeing each other each day, striving towards something for God's glory and how that helps you grow in love. And very practically speaking, when we do have difficulties, if we have a basis of love for one another, the way we then work through the difficulties is much more easy. But when you have a cold, separated relationship with someone, you don't know where they're coming from when something happens, and we jump to conclusions, or we infer things that we shouldn't infer. But in the most basic human relationship, if we have a basis for love, then our interaction is all the more profitable and understanding, and we grow, and we deepen in our love. Still, there may be some who are hard to love, we are all hard to love sometimes. What do we do then? C.S. Lewis says wonderfully in his great book, Mere Christianity, the following. He gives us this guidance advice. He says, do not waste your time bothering whether you, whether you love your neighbor or not. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, and he's not promoting to be fake. He's saying as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you will find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you will find yourself disliking him less. In general, practice love. That helps us then with the various other levels of love that we are called to show as Christians. People who know Christ will manifest love in various ways. First, they'll practice general brotherly love as we have here in verse 1, but also look in verse 2. They will practice or show hospitality to those outside the immediate community. Verse 2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. The words here are clear. Be hospitable to strangers. The Greek word there for, for this hospitality is literally kindness shown to strangers. I think it's important to note, this is referring to a special kind of hospitality that we as Christians ought to show to one another. Now, I hope you're hospitable to anyone that God brings into your path providentially. However, this is talking specifically to Christians showing hospitality to other Christians. I know this because of the book of Hebrews in general speaking to the Christian community, but verse 1 is speaking of brotherly love. We have brotherly love because we've been adopted by God, and now we as fellow adoptees are brothers and sisters. Those who are not adopted, not united to Christ, are not immediately in view here. We're talking about the brotherhood, uh, the sisterhood. We're talking about the family of God. So that's what verse 1 refers to. And then verse 3 refers to those who are persecuted for their faith. We see this in bigger context, and we'll look there in a moment. So verse 2 is also then referring to showing hospitality towards strangers, those you have not known that have come from other communities for whatever reason. Classic case in point would be Vladimir's journey. 
you have an opportunity, we've never met Sergey and Olga before, didn't even see a slide of them before. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we had an opportunity, providentially the Lord allowed us to show hospitality, and it happens somewhat naturally, doesn't it, when we show it, because they're brothers and sisters in Christ, they're family. And other opportunities happen on smaller ways, just visitors, maybe you're visiting here, I hope those who are visiting here, whether you're here to, see, to learn more about the church or you're from out of town and you're visiting, I hope that our people are showing great hospitality towards you because you're someone who's come to worship with us. This is something that is speaking of an inner family, special relationship that's even hard to define, showing hospitality to strangers. It refers here to something interesting, kind of a warning for thereby some have entertained angels unaware. Now, I don't think this is, should be taken to suggest that God regularly sends angels to kind of test to see how well you are or how good a job you're doing at hospitality. Rather, I think this is speaking of at least, uh, there's as many as possibly four references in the Old Testament where angels appear to people. They were clearly different, but not necessarily identified as angelic beings because they were given food and, cult and, and, and shelter and protection. By the way, those are all things that define hospitality, providing food, shelter, protection. And so one case, you might remember when Abraham had these angels appear to him. Genesis 18, this is what it says. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. He saw them as men. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. Now, that's not the bowing you do before God. It's simply a polite thing you do for someone who's a stranger who's come to stay with you. And so this is how Abraham acts. And then verse 3 of chapter 18 of Genesis, and said, O Lord, if I found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourself under the tree, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, Three says of fine flour, knead it, make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and a, and a calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. He showed immediate hospitality. Another case in Genesis 19. Uh, one of those dark moments that follow, but before it there was a, an act of hospitality. Two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself to the face of the earth, the same way Abraham did, and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly. He said, Turn, turn them aside to enter his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Uh, there's a case with Gideon, a case with Samson's mother, similarly, where it's not clear that they're angels, but they still show great hospitality, because clearly they are providentially appointed to be there by God, and they just immediately give what they have to them. The point being is that we should practice love by being hospitable, even to strangers, as if we were serving Christ himself. What is meant specifically by hospitality? What does this look like so we understand? The word is actually derived uh, from a word that means the love of strangers, as I mentioned. But it literally means to provide food, shelter, and protection. Many cultures, uh, this still to this day is considered a solemn duty or a sacred obligation. This is true definitely of first century Greece. If you have someone present themselves to your house, you're responsible for them while they're there and to see them off safely. This is what bothered Lot so much 
He knew how wicked the city was, and he didn't want his guests to be violated by the wickedness of the city. So he wanted to protect them, and he recognized it was on his head. He saw them, and he, he had to take care of them. But you know, more, more practically at this time, the time the Hebrews are reading, the church was undergoing great persecution and disbursement. And really to survive, hospitality was necessary. As people were taught by the apostles and they sent out missionaries, those missionaries didn't have like opportunities we have where they go ahead and they raise support and they gain a network of supporters. Instead, they're going to places where the church is small and beleaguered. And they have to be shown hospitality by people that didn't have much themselves. And John once writes uh, in John, 3 John to commend believers for showing this kind of hospitality because it actually advanced the church. John writes in 3 John, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like this, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Hospitality is a practice all Christians are called to. But I want to just make this side comment. Elders of the church in particular are called to be hospitable. I praise God that our elders are hospitable. In fact, I would submit to you, along with all those important things that are uh, requirements of the elders, uh, hospitality may be one of the most important. Because for all the doctrinal teaching they do, where can you best see it lived out but in their home? When you come into their home. In fact, to be an elder at Redeemer, one of the first questions I'll ask is, are you willing to shepherd a flock? Are you willing to have a home fellowship group meet in your house regularly where you open the word of God to the people of God, that you can have your life lived in front of them? And all, of, all the brothers will tell you, that's, that can be daunting to come into my house and see my house, my things, what's important to me. But hospitality is such an indicator of the love that only God gives us. Is there a limit on hospitality? I won't ask for a show of hands of how many people feel like someone in their life has worn out their welcome with you for a little bit too long. You know, there's a, a great Swahili proverb that says, treat your guest as a guest for two days. On the third day, give him a hoe. <laughs> Start working after three days. We need to be very sensitive to this as, as brothers and sisters. I think when we go on mission trips, we are always careful. The reason why we uh, raise money and try to come with as much as we can is so we are not a burden on the church that we're going to, especially if we have things. There's no reason for us to go and impose upon those brothers and sisters, whether it be in Juarez or in Bulgaria, where, where uh, Mike and Susan are going and where Pete and I will be going in June. Uh, we want to bring as much as we can if it's in our means. If it's not in our means, though, God will provide it with the church there. That's what hospitality is. Those who are Christians will manifest love by showing generally brotherly general brotherly love, but also by hospitality. And finally, verse 3, by the practice of sympathy. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. The practice of sympathy, the very definition of sympathy is there found. Remembering as though you were them. It's not just noting something happening. It's noting it and saying, what is it like to walk in their shoes? To remember as though it was you in their place. That's having sympathy. Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Who are we to sympathize with? Based on the text, those who are in prison 
those who, who are mistreated. Again, I would submit to you, this is a specific call to sympathize with those who are believers, who are being persecuted because they are believers. <coughs> now, I want to say clearly, prison ministry is important. Very important, very vital. For the same reasons uh, we follow the Great Commission, we should go into the prisons. And there are Christians in the prison. They're lawfully jailed because they've done something, but they're believers, fellow believers who need to grow. Definitely, that's true. But this text isn't speaking of that. This text is talking about the persecuted church. We're talking about people who are in prison unlawfully because they trust Christ. That's what this verse is about. So you can see the circles. We start with general brotherly love, then we expand to hospitality to those we have not yet met, but they come into our body, and then we sympathize with those who we may never see in this life, but we know are suffering right now because they trust Jesus. I would submit to you Matthew 5.10, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Then later in Matthew 25, a familiar text, which is often taken out of context, says this, for I was hungry, Jesus is talking, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. He's talking about those who are in union with him by faith. And speaking in the first person, saying, it was me. When you serve another believer, you're serving Jesus. That's what he's saying in Matthew 25. Those who are persecuted because they trust in Jesus. Serve them. Seek a way to lift them up. Encourage them. Remember them. Sympathize with them. And obviously, brothers and sisters, we in America are to be active in sympathizing during this time of great spiritual freedom and relative ease for us. We cannot forget that there are millions, I said millions, who it is illegal for them to worship and it's downright dangerous for them to do so. We cannot sit here and go off to lunch and forget the person in Eritrea who is in a four-by-four four crate right now and has been for weeks because he preaches the gospel. His family is destitute. His children are destitute. The government won't let them eat. So let's remember that when we break bread this afternoon. Not to make ourselves feel guilty. Recognize providence is, is God's working out his goodwill. But for right now, what he's given us as a responsibility is sympathizing. And that means many things. I could say a lot here, but let me at least refer you to three wonderful organizations to check out uh, this, this matter further. The Voice of the Martyrs, Strategic World Impact, International Christian Concern. These are just three. There are many others. And listen to what Voice of the Martyrs say. Around the world today, Christians are being persecuted for their faith. More than 70 million Christians have been martyred for their faith since 33 A.D., this year, an estimated 160,000 believers will die at the hands of their oppressors, and over 200 million will be persecuted, arrested, tortured, beaten, or jailed. In many nations, it is illegal to own a Bible, share your faith, change your faith, or allow children under 18 to attend a religious service. Recently, we had put before us a man in Afghanistan who confessed the name of Christ, and he could have been killed. But because there's a presence there and a media presence, people found out about it and he was basically rescued out into Italy. That happens all the time and you don't hear about it and they die. Listen to these countries. Just pick three of the countries I name and pray for them today. Afghanistan, Algeria, Bangladesh, Chechnya, 
Caiaphas, China, Colombia, Comoro Islands, Cuba, Cyprus, Egypt, Ethiopia, India, Indonesia, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait. Now, did you notice I said India and China? How many people live in each of those countries? Over a billion in both, a billion and a half in China. Conservative estimates say the church is growing exponentially in these places, but they're being persecuted. How many people are in America? I think we have 350 million. So take all the Christians that are in America. I would suggest to you that there are more people being persecuted than all the Christians that exist in America, just in those two countries. That's who we should be sympathizing with. Libya, Malaysia, Morocco, Myanmar, Nepal, Nigeria, North Korea, Sudan. Sudan. Pray for Sudan. Pakistan, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, Somalia, Syria, Tunisia, Turkey, United Arab Emirates, Vietnam, Yemen, and the list really does go on. Th think of just three of those countries. Pray for them today. Sympathize with them. Explain to your kids that what your kids have is unique. They live in a place that is unlike any other place on the earth because most places are not like this. That website for Voice of the Martyrs has wonderful, wonderful suggestions uh, in how we can help ex expressly. First of all, just empowering the persecuted Christians by our prayers for them, remembering them, but also supporting ministries that bring Bibles to them, giving relief. You know, there are many families who are of, of martyrs who are destitute because the husband died in their particular country. A woman can't work and can't find work. And women and children are left destitute. There's ways to give to them. Uh, evangelize the, pers the, the persecutors themselves. Support missions and ministries that work to to actually bring people to Christ in those countries, to see revival come to those countries, or Christianity to come at first, and then to see the persecution lifted because the country changes. Projects of encouragement that we can be part of, and information constantly keeping before us the fact of this persecution. In this text, we have how it is that Christians will manifest love, generally and, uh, and also an extended to other believers who come into our midst providentially, and then sympathizing for those who are suffering right now for Jesus. What is the distinguishing activity of our church? Is it evangelism, missions, theological study, doctrinal precision, defense of the faith, buildings, elaborate programs, welfare, charity? All things that are certainly part of our calling, but I would submit to you that our vigorous pursuit of the truth and a vigorous pursuit of love, those are to be our distinguishing activities. I want this to be said of us, what was said of the church in the year 140 AD when the unbelieving Greek writer Lucian wrote, it is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. Their first legislator, Jesus, has put it into their heads that they are brethren. Let's pray. Lord, we say with the psalmist, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Lord, grant us unity that can only come from your supernatural power through the Holy Spirit, so that as we vigorously pursue your truth, your word, we would be constantly looking for ways in which to practice that love you showed us that's so revealed in the truth that we would love one another, that the world might see us and not only hear, hear the words that we speak or the outreach activities we conduct, but would say, those people are serious. I can't believe it. They're serious. And then long to know why it is that we practice this love. And then all glory will go to you, for we could not drum this up in ourselves.
Lord, we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. You have brought down the dividing wall of separation between us and you. Now let us love one another. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to 644 as the elders come to prepare the table.